Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with... And Musa, Tabisolehoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN Envoy briefs UN on the situation in the Central African Republic, South Sudan rival leaders arrive in Addis Ababa for peace talks, and the ICC urged to probe violations committed by loyalists of Ivory Coast President Alassane Ouattara. In economics, South Africa's mining ministry meets companies and unions over planned job cuts. And in sports news, Springbok coach announces team to play against Argentina. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Malian security forces have arrested five people over their involvement in a deadly attack north of the African country. The people are suspected of being affiliated with the militant group Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghrib, which claimed responsibility for the fatal raid. The arrests come two days after assailants launched an attack on a Mali National Guard security post, killing 11 soldiers and injuring another. South Sudan's National Security Service has shut down another newspaper, the Arabic-language Al-Rai newspapers, the second paper, and third media group ordered to close down in the space of a few days. No reasons have been given for the orders. Media rights group, the Committee to Protect Journalists East Africa researcher, 
Tom Rhodes says the latest crackdown appears to be targeting groups that have been critical of President Silva Kiir's administration or carried reports that are not to the government's liking. Hundreds of migrants trying to reach the Mediterranean from Libya are feared to have drowned after their fishing boat capsized. Rescue officials say 399 people have been rescued and 25 have been confirmed dead. An estimated 600 migrants were on the boat. The International Organization for Migration says more than 2,000 people have already died trying to cross the Mediterranean to Europe this year. In Kenya, three children are now known to have drowned after a passenger boat capsized yesterday following a collision with a fishing vessel on Lake Victoria. Police say 21 people were rescued. Serakimane reports from Nairobi. Although initial reports indicated that one of the boats had more than 200 passengers on board, the Kenya Red Cross Society says all passengers have been accounted for. There were no casualties on the fishing vessel, which also capsized with four people on board. Both boats have been retrieved from the lake. The Kenya Red Cross Society says it is currently offering counseling services to the survivors as well as the relatives of the bereaved. Lake Victoria borders Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. And finally, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is expected to start proceedings at the ruling ANC's Women's League National Conference today. The three-day conference will see a new leadership installed. Pusi Chimombe reports. The first half of the day will comprise speeches from President Jacob Zuma, ANC Gauteng Chairperson Poma Shakile, ANC Women's League President Angie Mutsecha. Messages of support are expected from affiliate partners, DSACP and COSATU, and international visitors will be made up of representatives from women's leagues from the region's former liberation movements. Time will then be set aside for delegates to discuss specific issues in their commissions, and the nomination processes for the election will start. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Thank you, Anne. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Sudan peace talks are expected to resume later today in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, under the mediation of regional bloc IGAD. Resumption of the talks follows U.S. President Barack Obama's ultimatum to warring parties to agree on a power-sharing peace deal by August the 17th or face tough sanctions. James Mangula reports. The Addis Ababa talks are led by IGAD, assisted by the so-called Troika, comprising Britain, Norway, the United Nations, European Union, the African Union, China, and France, as well as five African nations. The talks preceded a long-awaited August the 17th, when parties that have been locked in fierce fighting South Sudan government troops and rebels have been battling for 19 months since President Salva Kiir of South Sudan claimed that 11 prominent politicians, including his one-time Vice President Riek Machar, now rebel leader, had plotted to topple his administration. Reliable government sources say the coming agreement 
contains some segments that will prompt the warring factions to disagree or agree. Some of the segments relate to making South Sudan a federal government, thereby dividing it into two states, one state stretching from the northwestern part of South Sudan to the eastern side, where oil-rich regions of Unity and Upper Nile are located, to be ruled by Riek Machar with the central part, further south where Juba is located, stretching from the capital all the way to the west near the border with the Central African Republic, to be under the rule of President Salva Kiir. Michael McQuay, South Sudan's Information Minister, is optimistic that if all goes well, a peace agreement is likely to be signed in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. If the agreement meets the expectations of the two parties and the people of South Sudan, then definitely it will be signed. If it doesn't meet the expectations, then there will be no way for us to continue that way. Anything that is new will not be accepted. Onyote Adigo, leader of the minority parties in South Sudan parliament, fears that President Salva Kiir may not sign the peace pact. He cannot jump into something which can commit him to have a political suicide. James Akuku, an independent analyst of politics in South Sudan, wants both sides to compromise with the express purpose of reaching an agreement. The best thing for both sides up to now is just for them to give the concession. The army issue, yes, they can also try to reach to some concession. Perhaps sometime this is where you propose that an outside force can come and help. Another South Sudanese political analyst, Alfred Lokuji, thinks that if the agreement is signed, it will bring to an end the current conflict. The proposal is meant to provide a compromise for both sides. The patience of the ordinary South Sudanese who is completely dependent on the protection of these people is running out. David Williams, Secretary General of South Sudan National Alliance, an umbrella group of opposition parties, in South Sudan, Pini points the main issue that concerns the warring factions. A central issue of concern to us, that is the necessity to have a lean government during the transition, reconstruction of the war-affected areas and or reforms, especially the security sector reform. As peace talks continue in Addis Ababa, it may be imperative to point out that U.S. President Barack Obama has already said that the world might have to come up with a different plan for South Sudan if the newest African nation's warring leaders fail to meet the August 17 deadline for a permanent peace pact. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amka na Unai.
A campaign to return girls to school in war-torn South Sudan is due to get underway, according to the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. The enrollment rate for girls has declined since the start of a conflict in December 2013, and many girls never make it past primary school. As according to Puong Guyen, UNICEF's chief education officer in the country, she's been speaking to Regina Gole about the campaign ahead of Girls' Education Day this Friday. The Girls' Education Day is going to be celebrated on Friday, the 7th of August. And this is a great opportunity for the Ministry of Education coming together with UNICEF and other partners to celebrate all that girls have been able to achieve in South Sudan. Since independence, the enrollment rate has doubled, but we're seeing that the conflict has really put a huge dent in that. And we want the strategy to come in, and it's coming at the right time right now, to inject and make sure that girls are coming back to school and not only that they come back but they are also retained in school and to complete an education so it's really about a celebration of girls in South Sudan mm-hmm. and the celebration of education throughout this country What role do you play as UNICEF to make sure that education works well for all children in South Sudan? UNICEF we feel absolutely that all children, whether it be girls or boys, have the right to an education. It, it is our responsibility to make that happen. Mm. And so for us, the gender equality is, is very much at the core of our work to support basic education here in South Sudan. And we have a number of different projects, and in all our projects, gender sensitivity and equity focus is what we do in inclusive education, which is including girls in all education projects or our support for child schools or even in the education in emergency response Mm -hmm. Um, girls have to be targeted and in fact in many ways they they need additional focus because they are really at the the most vulnerable girls in South Sudan they are the last to enter school Mm -hmm. they are the first to drop out Mm -hmm. and at the secondary level most don't even make it to that level. Mm. So they Most are of them even few enter in, in senior secondary school. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so the majority, I mean, it, throughout the country, we have less than 10% uh, of children who actually complete a full primary mm-hmm. cycle. So, so girls are really at a triple advantage uh, where we are concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that we make sure that through all our education programs and projects which UNICEF support, and even those that we support with partners, mm-hmm. That, that it has to be center stage uh, focus on girls. That was Puyong Guyen, UNICEF's chief education officer in South Sudan, speaking to Regina Gole. The political crisis in the Central African Republic is moving forward despite ongoing tensions between rival communities, according to the UN's top envoy in the country. The Central African Republic has been mired in sectarian violence between Muslim and Christian militia for the past two years. The insecurity has forced over 820,000 people to flee their homes. Half have crossed into neighboring countries as refugees. Babaka Gaye, the head of the UN mission in the country, MINUSCA, was in New York to brief the Security Council. Christina Silviero reports. Political progress in the country notably this very inclusive Bangui Forum, the commencement of the electoral process, and also a reduction in violence in the country. So things are moving. Uh, We are not stuck in the middle of the process. We are not witnessing steps back. This is positive. And indeed, when uh, we interacted with the council members, 
most of their questions were related to the elections, to the political process, to reconciliation, to SSR. While in the past session, security matters were really on the top of the agenda and the discussions. So, in a nutshell, this country, thanks to the work of the authorities, the mobilization of the population, the support of international community, is moving towards the end of the transition. And yet you mentioned that these advances are somewhat fragile. Indeed, this is fragile. And you have every day evidences of this fragility. First of all, you have still tension between the communities because you still have enclave in the western part of the countries where Muslims are living. You have still, we are still in a situation where we are rebuilding the justice system. Now, you mentioned that the Bangui Forum was one of the major notes of progress marked by a sense of um, dialogue and inclusivity. And yet we saw that the uh, National Transition Council decided to have refugees excluded from the upcoming elections. Um, how are we going to reconcile that? I think that this vote of the National Transitional Council was a very interesting vote. It was an indication of the need to continue the efforts in the reconciliation domain. Interestingly enough, the vote of the refugee was decided by the Constitutional Court in January. And this decision, nobody can challenge them. So really the reaction of the, the members of the parliament not only is absolutely illegal, but in addition, that's a demonstration that despite the Bangui Forum, there is a need, an absolute need to implement the decision of the Bangui Forum. That was Babaka Gaye, head of the UN mission in Central African Republic, MINUSCA, speaking to Christina Silviero in New York. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Standard Bank Top Women Awards reveal gender-empowered businesses in South Africa. On the 6th of August at Empress Palace, the event is a collaborative platform dedicated to recognizing outstanding leadership, inspiration, vision and innovation in organizations which have stepped up and shaped women's roles within the private and public sectors. Contact Babalom Kobeni at 086-000-9590 to book a table or a seat at the awards or visit www.topwomenawards.co.za. For more info, quote Channel Africa to claim your 10% discount. Be part of the conversation and join our social media platforms on Twitter at Top Women Awards and Facebook at Standard Bank Top Women Awards. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go back in time to today in 1945. During World War II, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, resulting in an estimated 140,000 deaths. The American government justified the use of the bomb by saying that they wanted to shorten the war. Let's listen to this report as we pay tribute to Hiroshima's survivors. Scientists, British and American, have made the atomic bomb at last. The first one was dropped on a Japanese city this morning. It was designed for a detonation equal to 20,000 tons of high explosives. That's 2,000 times the power of one of the RAF's 10-ton bombs of orthodox design. 
One woman who experienced the Hiroshima bomb blast and saw its horrendous carnage at first hand was Setsuko Thurlow. She was in a building near her school, about a mile from where the bomb went off. Remarkably enough, she survived. And here she gives an account of that unforgettable day to Sue McGregor. At 8.15 in the morning, I saw the bluish-white flash outside. I had a sensation that my body was floating in the air, and that's the end of my memory. I don't know how long it took, but when I regained consciousness, I found myself pinned under the collapsed building. It was total darkness and silence, too. Then gradually I started hearing my classmates' voice asking for God and mothers to help them. And um, then somebody's hands started touching me, and those hands loosened the timbers around me. To make a long story short, I was rescued by this gentleman. I was pulled out of the rubble. Were you badly injured yourself? No, I was not, miraculously. No, I was covered with little cuts here and there, but it was nothing because the kind of people I saw when I got out of that building, which was, by the way, already on fire, that meant all my classmates who were together with me in the rubble were burned to death alive. Then when I looked around, it was dark, although it happened in the morning, 8.15, it was dark. Perhaps something must have happened to the atmosphere. It was like twilight. And then I started seeing the streams of human beings slowly shuffling toward the hillside. You must have seen escape. some appalling sights. I sure did. Well, their bodies were badly burned and blackened and swollen. The strips of skin hanging from their bones. The eyes were popped out or melted. It was a grotesque sight, and there was simply shuffling, you know. Nobody was running or screaming or shouting. Nobody had that kind of physical or psychological strength left. In the 60s, an American psychiatrist called Lifton went and talked to many survivors, yes. and he reported various traumas that they'd gone through, mm -hmm. which included even feelings of guilt, but certainly feelings mm -hmm. of, of despair. You went back and mm -hmm. talked to survivors as well. Did your findings coincide with his? Well, I certainly respect and admire that psychiatrist from the United States, but there are a few things I don't quite see the same way. For example, in my view, he overemphasizes this death guilt, like um, people who survived the concentration camp, we too have this feeling of guilt because we are alive today. How come we are alive? Well, I think that was overemphasized in uh, that area. Have you found, in, in fact, that a lot of the people now, all these years later, have survived psychologically and have got a sort of strength? Thank goodness, yes. Many people have come out of the personal tragedy and have transcended, I think, into necessary political activism. And they are the one who is giving the inspiration uh, to, to the powerful peace movement in that country. You know, often the survivors are portrayed as somebody who experienced such horrible trauma, who was such a weakling and sad figure. Sure, there are many people who still remain in that state of psychic numbing, which Dr. Lifton talks about, but many have come out of that. That was Setsuko 
Thurlow, one of the survivors of the 1945 atomic bomb attack in Hiroshima, Japan, speaking to Sue McGregor. And that was Today in History in 1945. Now, the nuclear agreement between Iran, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus Germany and the EU, comes at a historically favorable time. Seventy years ago, the nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki opened the darkest chapter in the long history of humanity's wartime horrors. Fire, bullets and bayonets were now joined by nuclear radiation, a silent, invisible killer like gas and biological agents. After World War I, the international community adopted the so-called gas protocol to prohibit the use of chemical and bacteriological weapons. Likewise, the demand to ban any use of nuclear weapons has been strong and persistent since the end of World War II. Now, our question to you today is, do you think nuclear weapons should be abolished in all countries? Give us your views and your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Law experts in Malawi have proposed changes to the Prisons Act to improve conditions and reduce congestion in the country's prison where inmates are said to be subjected to inhumane conditions. This, these recommendations were made during a regional consultative workshop organized by the Special Law Commission on the Review of the Prisons Act in Blantyre. George Mango reports from Blantyre. In the past six decades, the Malawi Prison Act has witnessed and cut across many fundamental changes in the social, legal and constitutional framework of its operations. This also follows changes. The national awakening process was heightened by the decision in the Gebo Masangano suing on behalf of all prisoners in Malawi versus the Attorney General case, the Home Affairs and Internal Security, including Chief Commissioner of Prisons. In the case, the court heard that prison conditions in Malawi amounted to inhuman and degrading treatment of prisoners. This is why the commission wants to go beyond the pronouncements of the case to consider conditions of confinement in prisons like the health of prisons, overcrowding in prisons, rights and privileges of prisoners and rights of prisoners' special needs. High Court Judge Ken Manda, who is chairing the Special Law Commission on the Review of the Prisons Act, said the papers presented at the meeting were a product of thorough desk research and consultations. The whole reason why we're presenting the gaps at the moment is that we have uh, the Malawi Prison Services approached the Law Commission to inform the Law Commission that they, they have found some gaps within the Prisons Act. And it is uh, those gaps that we're now presenting to, to the stakeholders uh, with the view that once the stakeholders indeed agree that these are gaps in the legislation, 
we are now going to move forward with amending those particular uh, provisions or fixing those gaps within the Prisons Act. Dozens of stakeholders have since proposed several changes in the review of the Malawi Prisons Act to improve conditions and reduce congestion following public outcry that inmates are subjected to inhuman and degrading conditions. The delegates have also considered several issues such as the law as it stands now, the law and practice in comparative jurisdiction and applicable international instruments. The Malay Prison Service decided to conduct a review of the Act with the broad aim of aligning it with the dictates of the Constitution and applicable international law and principles on administration, governance and management of prisons and prisoners. Malay Human Rights Commission, MHRC, a government entity through its executive secretary, Grace Malira, recently on their tour to prisons, hinted that there is need for reforms in the way inmates are handled. There's a lot of um, prisoners that are enrolling into prisons. The healthy side, we also saw um, the initiative that is going on in terms of uh, screening for TB, HIV, and being able to start people on uh, treatment. Uh, taking care, there's the home-based care section that we saw. So one is able to note that there's a lot of um, interventions that are happening in providing for the prisoners' rights. In its contribution, the Center for Human Rights Advice and Assistance, CREA, has urged the Special Law Commission to speed up the process of reviewing the Act and ensure that every contribution is taken into consideration. Over the years, accounts have been told of the country's prison conditions, the tormenting of a crowded state in particular, but participants to the meeting agreed with resentment as presenters drew their attention to the present act's yawning gaps. For instance, the act, which has been in operation for almost 60 years, having been enacted into law on April 23, 1956, with a broad objective of providing for, among other issues, the establishment of prisons within Malawi, reveals that it does not incorporate the principles of rehabilitation, reformation and reintegration of offenders into the society. Manda, chair of the Special Law Commission on the issue, again. This is a legislation process. It takes uh, quite some time. Uh, but our expectation is that by uh, May uh, next year, we should be submitting the uh, draft bill to cabinet so that they can then uh, go through it before submitting it to, 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 to parliament. We have had uh, three consultation workshops, regional workshops. Uh, we are now going to go and uh, do um, redo our the bill, draft the bill actually, and present our findings, uh, like final positions, to a national uh, at a national consultative workshop. Meanwhile, the prisons department officials in their papers also felt that some documents that support the admission of prisoners to prison raise a lot of issues to do with validity. The cited documents, such as warrant of admission and temporal remand warrants issued by police, that are not specific, hence their potential for abuse by, for example, leaving a person in prison for a period longer than the contemplated temporal remand. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blanta. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. 
Malian security forces have arrested five people over the involvement in a deadly attack north of the African country. Hundreds of migrants trying to reach the Mediterranean from Libya are feared to have drowned after their fishing boat capsized. And Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe has been invited to attend South Africa's ANC Women's League Congress that starts today. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. South African President Jacob Zuma is due to answer questions in Parliament this afternoon. The leadership of Parliament is crossing its fingers that disruptions that have dogged the President in recent times do not happen again. But should the EFF insist on similar actions, new rules adopted last week give presiding officers powers to call security services in to eject them. Joseph Masia reports. If President Jacob Zuma was in any way prone to bouts of nervousness, this morning should be a torrid time for him. After all, his appearances in the National Assembly have come to be associated with discord, protests and at times raw violence. Judging by five of the questions on the question paper, it should be plain sailing for the President. The ANC has three questions ranging from preparations for the BRICS Bank to what is meant by the concept of African solutions to African problems. And then there are two questions from the DA on the separation of powers and the declining FDI as well as FDI outflows. The last question, though, is from the president of the EFF, Julius Malema. This is where things might get tricky because the EFF has only one question for the president. The problem is with this one, who refuses to pay. That one, wherever we meet him either a public toilet or anywhere is going to be asked the question where's the money when are you paying back the money that's that's a commitment we've made deputy speaker lichesa tenudi says he hopes the new rules of parliament intended to deal with unruly behavior will not need to be used but he says they are ready to apply them we are ready uh, to defend the rights of parliament and the institution and its image uh, that we will do our work. We, we do not also expect members of parliament to continue to want to disrupt uh, parliament. So we appeal to them and we expect all of them to behave in a manner that will make it completely unnecessary for anything untoward to happen in the sitting. The ANC's parliamentary spokesperson Muloto Mutapo says they are not worried at all. He says they are confident that there are enough measures to deal with troublemakers. Any disruption will be dealt with anybody who dares uh, prevent the institution to conduct oversight over the president, over the executive, will be dealt with accordingly in terms of the rules. Uh, People who are defying the instructions and the rulings of the speaker will be uh, forcefully removed, kicking and screaming, out of uh, the Houses of Parliament. DA Chief Whip John Stienhazen says they are concerned that members of the SAPS will be illegally drafted into the parliamentary security services to eject members. Well, I think certainly we can expect that the rule is going to be tested. I mean, various parties have made uh, very clear um, submissions in that regard and public statements in that regard. And that's precisely why it was very important today, before we even arrive in the House tomorrow, to understand who is going to be there and how they've managed to be there. 
Um, I believe that if they've used members of the South African Police Service, it's ultra-various of both the Constitution and the new rule of Parliament. EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chibambu says nothing will dampen their resolve. So we're going to be asking if he has paid the money and they were not intimidated by the security threats and physical assault which the Speaker has put in place to intimidate members of the EFF. We're going to hold Zuma accountable because that is what we are here for. That is what voters said we must come and do here in Parliament. There's no retreat, there's no surrender. We're going to make him answer the question of when is he going to pay back the money. And that was EFF Chief Whip Floyd Chibambo ending that report by Joseph Musia in the South African Parliament. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Countries in the SADC region say promoting regional integration and cross-border activities will help end xenophobia. The South African government and business representatives of KwaZulu-Natal province Mozambique and Swaziland were in the Seychelles Islands to promote trade, investment and tourism among the four SADC countries on the southeast of the continent under the East Three Route Initiative. The gathering came in the wake of xenophobic violence against African migrants that started in Durban in April, sparking criticism from across the world. Zanele Butelezi reports. South Africa is forging ahead with efforts to strengthen trade, investments and tourism cooperation with fellow African countries. The country is desperate to change its image after the April xenophobic violence, which left about 10 people dead and thousands of others displaced from their homes in parts of KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. KwaZulu-Natal MEC for Economic Development, Tourism and Environmental Affairs reiterated government's commitments to ensuring peaceful coexistence among Africans in the country and the continent. And by the initiatives we are taking, we would be reducing the problem of Africans becoming immigrants and therefore ensuring that in their own economies there is space for them to develop, to prosper. But there is no African who must be under any circumstances be treated or ill-treated badly because he has moved from one particular country to another in his or her own continent. Mabuya Kulu led a delegation from South Africa at the Istri Roots Investment Seminar involving Mozambique, Swaziland and Seychelles at Mahe Island. The Istri Roots Initiative promotes trade and investment among the four static countries on the southeast of the continent. Swaziland's Minister of Commerce, Industry and Trade, Gideon Lamini, says creating opportunities in countries is part of addressing the challenges that exist. And so because one of the causes is people moving to seek job opportunities in areas where there appears to be uh, some job opportunities. So through his route, his three route and other initial initiatives, we are breaking the barriers and allowing the whole region to grow so that jobs will be, it will be jobs galore everywhere. Mozambique's permanent secretary of the Ministry of Culture and Tourism, Domingos, Domingos do Rosario Artur, says cross-border initiatives will help people understand each other better. He also emphasized the need to provide young people with skills. The most important also is to promote the opportunity for everyone. That's we discussed in how to promote the skill for young people to give them the opportunity what the role can be made 
by, by the businessmen to promote and to create more opportunity for jobs, but to give them the skills to, for the young people to promote own, own, their own initiative uh, in terms of job also. These sentiments were shared by Minister of Tourism and Culture in Seychelles, Ellen Sintange. He says Africa will succeed only when people on the ground know and understand each other's countries. Africa must work with Africa, not just government to government, but at lower levels, at the people's level, at the grassroots level. Then these sort of incidents will not happen because we will see each other as brothers for the same continent, for a same cause. These countries have loaded the History Roots Initiative as a step in the right direction towards strengthening ties and growth in the continent. Zanilu Butelezi, Mahe Island, Seychelles. Seven men suspected of rhino poaching were arrested yesterday at one of the world's largest game reserves, the Kruger National Park, following a shootout with park rangers in two separate incidents. One of the men was seriously wounded and was rushed to hospital. Some of the suspects who are said to have been roaming the park since Friday had been illegally hunting for rhinos. Selina Dobong reports. Evidence of the volatile environment at the Kruger National Park was revealed when seven men were brought into the police station right in front of the media contingent that was attending a court hearing of another group of five suspected poachers arrested last week. Spokesperson for the South African National Parks, Isaac Patla, says the latest arrests are a microcosm of what happens in the park on a daily basis. We were fortunate in these two instances that people were apprehended before they uh, could shoot an animal and try and escape with the horns. But at one given time, we do have groups, uh, 15 to 20 groups of people, comprising of three individuals hunting rhino illegally in the Kruger National Park. And we are grateful that we have uh, skilled people that were able to spot the tracks and are able to follow up. And in instances where you find that uh, the trucks are still hot, uh, we get the K-9 unit to come in. But in these instances, it was the field rangers. Two rifles, one a 30-30 caliber, another a 303 caliber, ammunition and an X were found in their possession. They are yet to be charged. The group of five men who were arrested last week have been charged with trespassing, conspiracy, possession of illegal firearms and ammunition, and illegal hunting of rhino with intention to kill. Bongeni Nonyana is representing three of those suspects. He says since 2009, he has been dealing with an alarmingly high number of poaching cases. By then, the maximum sentence that one would impose here was about three years. Currently, the most harshest sentence I've received is 30 years for hunting a baby rhino, actually. I don't know what the park is doing to keep this because the more they try to work on it, the more it, ex- it escalates. They, it's getting out of hand now. And uh, unfortunately, even the sentences they're imposing doesn't seem to be conveying a message. Speaking on condition of anonymity, a frail-looking mother of one of the suspects who appeared before court earlier says his son has always been well-behaved at home and was surprised when she heard that he was arrested for poaching. She says she does not know how her son did this. She just heard that her son was arrested and that she has not seen him since. 
She says what she heard was that her son and his accomplices got arrested and were made to call the men who had sent them to the park to poach. The men then asked if everything went well. They said to him everything went well. The police then went and arrested that man. Ansi Fenta, special prosecutor at the Skukuza Periodical Court, says prosecuting poachers often comes with a number of challenges. Of course, since there's big money involved, they get the best lawyers money can get. The delaying tactics they sometimes apply, taking things to the Constitutional Court, taking things to the Appeal Court. And of course, uh, the challenge in these cases is if they are not caught in the act, it's extremely difficult for the police to prove the cases. Luckily, the task team we're having of SAPS is extremely well equipped, and so are the Rangers and the ECI, the Environmental uh, Crime Investigation Leg of Sandparks. Uh, the other challenges are emotionally, it's totally draining. You prosecute these cases not only with your head, but, but also with your heart. It gets to you sometimes, the little orphans, the cruelty, the brutality. But I'm doing it because my heart says I must do it. Fenta has, however, lauded prison sentences meted out to poachers in the last few years. She says the success rate of prosecutions is increasing. Reporting for Channel Africa from the Kruger National Park, I am Selina Ntobong. Dear listener, would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now, tomorrow, and every day. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next. Thanks, Mario. South Africa's power utility, Eskom has implemented stage one load shedding. The power utility says it is experiencing increased electricity demand and a shortage of generation capacity as power station units are being on maintenance. Eskom says this is likely to continue until 10 o'clock this evening. South Africa's mining ministry has held talks with companies and unions over planned job cuts. This is President Jacob Zuma's government mouths over high unemployment ahead of key elections next year. The mining industry, which contributes around 7% to Africa's most developed economy, is struggling with the sinking commodity prices, rising costs and labor unrest. 
According to a report released by PricewaterhouseCoopers, while the oil price drop has caused activity in Africa's oil and gas industry to decline, it has also served as a wake-up call to many African governments. According to PwC Africa Oil and Gas Advisory Leader Chris Brendanhan, this wake-up call has spurred many African governments to start passing favorable oil and gas legislation designed to attract investment into the sector. The PwC report analyzes what has happened in the last 12 months in the oil and gas industry within Africa's major and emerging markets. Lesotho's Ministry of Agriculture and Food Security says government has resolved to subsidize farmers to ensure food security through improved 2015-16 summer production. The initiative on the intensive crop production will see farmers and governments sharing expenses on a 50% basis for costs on plowing, planting and insecticide spraying, among other services. The benefit, according to Minister of Agriculture and Food Security Mabalesa Motoho, this will be reaped by others other than black farmers as they are already benefiting from buying agricultural items such as seeds and fertilizers at reduced costs. Rwanda's Ministry of Agriculture and Animal Resources has started a nationwide campaign to promote agriculture mechanization to improve the sector's performance. Agriculture Minister Tony Nsanganira says the drive also seeks to raise awareness on use of farm machinery to increase production and enhance quality along the value chain. It will be conducted in collaboration with the Ministry of Education and the Workforce Development Authority, which will train farmers in modern farming technologies. Sanganira says the farmers will be equipped with skills on how to use farm machinery, including plows, spraying and irrigation equipment and ICT solutions. One US dollar cost you twelve seven six in South Africa, ten three in Botswana, seven eight three in Zambia, six four British pound, nine one euro, gold one zero eight three dollars, platinum nine four nine dollars an ounce, brand crude four nine dollars, seven three cents a barrel. Am Tabiso Lohoku. Let's go back in time to today. In 2008, army commanders oust Mauritania's freely elected president, Sidi Aoud Sheikh Abdallahi, in a bloodless coup. That was today in history in 2008. Our sports update up next was Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, Springbok team manager Ian Schwartz announced the national team to play against Argentina in the Alaska Slaga Rugby Championship test to be played at the Growth Point Stadium in Deben on Saturday. Springbok team to face Argentina in Deben. Number 15, Vali Larue. Number 14, JC Krill. Number 13, the captain, John de Villiers. Number 12, Damien de Linda. 11, Brian Abana. Number 10, Andre Pollard. Number 9, Ruan Pinar. Number 8, the vice captain, Scott Berger. Number 7, Marcel Kutsia. Number 6, Heinrich Proussau. Number 5, Louis de Jager. Number 4, Eben Etzebet. Number 3, Vincent Koch. 
Number two, Bismarck to Plessis. And number one, Tindaim Tavarera. The replacement players, number 16, Adrian Strauss. Number 17, Trevor Nyakani. Number 18, Marcel van der Merwe. Number 19, Peter Sefte Twee. Number 20, Sia Kulisi. 21, Kobus Reinach. 22, Patrick Lambie. And number 23, Luwazi Mwawa. Thank you. And Springbok coach Hannah Gamea defended his conservative team selections by saying that he needs to maintain continuity within the team. First of all, you know, it's, uh, it's more difficult to pick a side of uh, not a lot of guys standing at the moment. And I just felt we need some sort of continuity going forward. Uh, if we can now forward back, you know, with three of our tight heads, our lock and all three of our loose forwards injured, uh, we haven't had a lot of continuity, especially in the forwards. So uh, the great thing is that a lot of youngsters got a chance, a lot of players did get a chance. And uh, the backs, they wanted to have some sort of continuity, especially in 1912. Uh, it's a pretty guy like is still injured. But uh, now we have to uh, also win these games just to get your confidence up. Uh, the difficulty is a lot of games before the World Cup, and you have to get guys that hasn't had form to, to eat form. I'm very uh, happy that a lot of these guys that didn't have form in Split 12 is now getting to their best, so you need to give them more game time. But you also have to balance other guys that you want to see and want to play. So in local football, Bluffend and Celtic beat Mamelodi Sundowns 4-2 via penalties to book a spot in the MTN 8 Cup semi-final last night at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Atrashville after 120 minutes of football ended one all. Fistin Razak Abdul's goal in extra time and Musa Bilankulu's header were enough to take the match to penalties and the victory means the Suelele join Bidvest Vets, Ajax Cape Town and Kaiser Chiefs in the semi-finals. And Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff and International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach attended an official countdown ceremony last night, marking one year until the opening of the Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games. The ceremony went ahead with full-blown optimism. And Bach says each of the organizing bodies is powering ahead full steam. I'm very confident that everything will be ready and that uh, the organizing committee, the city, the federal government, uh, the state of Rio, that uh, they all will uh, maintain their dynamism uh, because uh, they know uh, it is uh, still pressure, there is no time uh, to lose, but on the other hand uh, also everybody knows if uh, this uh, dynamism continues then we will have great gains. A disease-causing bacteria has been found among special forces horses kept at the equestrian venue in Diodoro. Whilst independent studies released last week showed dangerously high levels of viruses and bacteria in the waters where rowing, triathlon and sailing events will take place. Bach says athletes' health is the priority for the committee and that all guidelines are being followed. Uh, what is important for the IOC is uh, safe conditions uh, for uh, the athletes and for a fair competition. And this is uh, why uh, more tests uh, will be done. And uh, the, uh, the IOC is looking forward that uh, the guidelines of the World Health Organizations are respected. So far, this has been the case. And we can see that uh, there is no uh, imminent uh, significant risks uh, for uh, the athletes. And finally, with boxing news, Pakistani-born British boxer Amir Khan, who was on a four-day visit to Pakistan earlier this week, paid a courtesy call at the shrine of Hazrat Zata Ganj Baksh, patron saint of the city of Lahore. Khan says 
he's ready to take on the unbeaten boxer Floyd Mayweather anytime, anywhere. But argued the unbeaten American champion did not want to face him because he's afraid of being beaten. It's all about the youth, you know, bringing them into sport, giving them a direction, giving them a path in life. And that's what I want to do with the, with the academies also. I want to build the Ami Khan Foundation, which I'm going to be doing here in Pakistan. Uh, I, I, my next project is going to be in Pakistan. My first one was in Gambia. The next one is in Pakistan, inshallah. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. UN envoy brief Security Council on the situation in the Central African Republic. And South Sudan peace talks resume today in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Khumuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Mayway with a song titled Nanan. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah,